All right, we are continuing our study on the topic of the Apostle Thomas and a faith that questions. Uh, someone asked me, when are we going to get back to Thomas? Just be patient. We're going to get there. This is all inside this wonderful container. So for our new folks, if, you, if you've heard of Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, doubting Thomas, as some would call him, unjustly, which I'm building a case for, there are two significant events that we, uh, we see Thomas in. That preceding and at the resurrection of Lazarus, and then at the resurrection of Jesus and post-resurrection. But as we were studying this, there is a span of time between those two events that we have been uh, studying into. This is not an Easter message so much, but we want to drill down into these events in part that we might know them better, but also in part to help us understand what was going on in the lives of the disciples as they're walking through the events of Jesus' ministry and his arrest and all these things. Because when we study the people of the Bible, we need to be reminded that these are human beings. These are men and women like you. No, they don't have Twitter. No, they don't cry when the Aggies lose. I mean, no, they don't do all those things. Huh? X. X? Oh, yeah, X. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I'll call it Twitter forever. One of these days, my great-grandchild's going to go, what are you talking about, Paul Paul? But anyway, but uh, we, we started what I entitled the tour between the tombs. These two events, the space between the two had significant events. And, oh, this is going to be a great run because I have the wrong notes. Okay, hold on. No, no, it's going to be okay. It's going to be just fine. Hold on going to show you how good I am. <laughs> so the first one we looked at was Lazarus to the garden. We saw where Jesus and the apostles took some time away and, and fellowshiped and recouped and, and, and had some time away. And then they come back and we see the triumphal entry, which to Jesus, well, not to Jesus because he knew everything, but to everyone else, including Thomas, this had to have been a very energizing thing because this, this ministry now is being accepted in mass and they're being cheered as they come in and they're crying out to Jesus, Hosanna, and it must have been an exciting, encouraging thing. They think finally our ministry has arrived. People are beginning to hear, understand, and receive what we're doing. And as they went through that week, there was uh, the Jesus cleansed the temple, and people would have been excited about that because finally someone is stepping up, stepping out, and speaking out about some of the injustices being done at the temple, some of the distractions and the discouragements that are going on, because in, in some ways God's house had been made into a, a money exchange where people would come in and they would, it wouldn't look any different than the world. And we talked about the fact that when people come to church, whether in the company of the individual church, you and me, or in the company of the corporate church with us, it should look different here than it does out there. There should be different spirits, different attitudes, different uh, attitudes here than out there. But sometimes, unfortunately, the world comes to the corporate church and they see not that big a difference between this and that. And the truth is, if we're all honest, if we didn't see a true, meaningful distinction between the church and the world, why bother? Amen? Amen. Is there anybody here that would have 
been benefited by sleeping in a little bit this morning? Is there anybody here that had to fight a kid or a grandkid to get to church today? My poor parents, God bless them. We were a beating on Sunday mornings to get to church. I mean, like herding ducks with feathers. I can't even imagine. I Praise God that they had the commitment to see it through. Amen. My sister's here. She can testify. Don't point fingers. But we see Jesus cleanse the temple and we see that they go to the upper room to celebrate Passover together. Even Jesus says, I've been looking forward to this time. And they would have arrived there with a high expectation of something really, really special. We are, now, we are no longer in August. Thank you, Jesus. We are now in the ember months. And I'm already thinking about November because I do love me some turkey and dressing. I mean, come on. I, I don't know. Now, Thanksgiving isn't always the pinnacle of hope for everyone. But we, you know, we see those. Hallmark did it, right? And, and they would have come to the upper room and there was this sense of anticipation and excitement. Man, Jesus is here. We're in Jerusalem. It's the Passover. Uh, people are beginning to respond to the ministry. This is going to be the great thing. And they show up and things start getting weird quick because Jesus starts washing feet. And then one of them leaves unexpectedly and kind of unknowingly. Judas decides it's time to do what he came to do. And then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. So it wasn't everything that they anticipated, but it was, it was good, but a little weird, you know? It's like the year that someone decides we're not having turkey for Thanksgiving. And you're like, well, yeah, I remember one year, I don't know, you remember, Chris, that someone, someone issued a, a Thanksgiving ham instead of a turkey. Can I just say this? That's an abomination. If that's your thing, that's your sin, that's okay. Just don't bring it to my house. <laughs> but then they leave the upper room and they go to the garden, a place they would be familiar with, a place they would be comfortable with. And Jesus says, if you guys would, pray with me. And, you know, they had good intentions, but good intentions didn't feed the bulldog, my dad used to say. They had a full belly and a full spirit and they fell asleep. And then later that evening, G Judas brings the crowd, and they arrest Jesus. And so we, we looked at what it was like to go from the resurrection of Lazarus, the pinnacle, to the upper room, and now what is this? This betrayal in the garden. And then the second week, we went from the garden to the trials. We went from Judas's kiss to the trials, the kangaroo trials of Judas and, uh, and the uh, Judas of Pilate. And this trumped-up effort, quite honestly, to, to murder Jesus. They broke the rules, they pushed through a decision, and they were trying to get this done before daylight. I mean, this is an overnight court case. It, it, everything about it's wrong, but they're committed to doing wrong. And this is one thing I know, is when your heart and your mind is committed to doing wrong, it's hard to get out of that, that place. And so this week, we're looking at uh, we looked at uh, the kangaroo court. There we go. And so the night of this kangaroo court, the old city would have been quite busy. Now, I think a lot of people would have been asleep, but there would have been a lot of commotion. When they, they captured Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to the top right there for you, and they bring him in before the Sanhedrin, and they push through a verdict, and then they take him to Pilate there in the center top of your picture, 
And then Pilate decides, I'm going to pawn him off and sends him, uh, sends him over to Herod. And Herod is trying to get him to do some sort of party trick for him, but Jesus doesn't give him anything. And so they insult him, and they send him back to Pilate, and ultimately, Pilate uh, sentences him to death. And so today, we're looking at part three of our tours between the tombs. Now, someone asked me, did, did Pilate have a choice? The answer is yes, he absolutely did. He had political pressure, he had social pressure, he had pride pressure, he had fear pressure. But can I say this? We always, have the, we always have the right to do what is right. Now, sometimes it's harder than others. And understand this, when we have the right to do what is right and we choose not to do it, the only blame is ours. Part of the challenge in our world today is we play the blame game. It's everyone else's fault. We need to own our stuff. As Christians, when we fall off the beam, we need to own our stuff. And when uh, we find ourselves and we make the wrong choice, we say the wrong thing, we're in the wrong place, we do the wrong action, we need to own our stuff. I'm sorry, I was wrong, will not kill you. Those are four words that will humble you. It may make you cry, and it may feel a little bit uncomfortable. But they're good words. They're right words. They're beneficial words. And so we see uh, that Pilate has declared death unto Jesus. So now we're going to go from Pilate's court to the resurrection very quickly, shall we? I love free stuff. So I, I, I get the opportunity to talk to you a little bit about crucifixion. Aren't you excited? Let's say excited, excited, yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> yeah, nah. part of the challenge about being a, 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 bit, a Bible student is this, is sometimes we don't have the opportunity to expand on a concept, and crucifixion is one of those things. Now, we don't want to sit around and talk about it all the time, but today I want us to, uh, to understand it a little better, if we may. So crucifixion was the, the death method of choice by the Romans. They didn't invent it. It was used by the Persians and the Carthaginians, but the Romans perfected it. The Romans used it, uh, I, I can't remember the time frame, but they were using it before Jesus' ministry, and they used it afterwards. And they were masters of the art of crucifixion. Now, when we hear the word crucifixion, we often, ref we often default to the cross that's depicted in most of Christian literature and art. But there are multiple ways in which crucifixion can be applied. And I want to expound on that for you just a little bit today. The first one is the stake. This is just a pole. This is just a wooden pole be planted in the ground. And uh, the, the convicted individual's hands would be tied above their heads and... There are two things that a crucifixion may involve. You see there, it may involve a pedestal, which is a place for the feet to rest. And then it may also have a saddle, a place for the convicted to see. Now, you're sitting there and you're going, oh man, the Romans, aren't they so nice? Well, no, because both of these simply lengthen the time that you live on the cross. When a person was crucified... The pedestal was put there so they could stand upon it. Their legs were bent slightly so that to get a full breath of air, they would have to stand up on the pedestal. 
the saddle was there that you could actually sit on it. But the problem with the saddle was this. It just made the suffering longer. And so we see the, we see the stake. Then we see the towel. Now this is a T without a, a part on the top. Now this was used a great deal. Because the cross beam would be taken off of it. And the convicted would be put upon it. And then it would be put upon uh, the cross beam. Now, this would be the same thing. Now, the, one of the things is the Romans would either give you a pedestal, which was an option, or they would simply take your feet, put them on opposite sides of the vertical pillar, and nail your feet to it. And so there again, for you to be able to draw breath, you would have to stand up on the nails that were in your feet. Crucifixion was not quick. I watched a show last night on History Channel because I'm a weirdo. And it was uh, about the invention of the guillotine. And at the time, the guillotine was considered to be the most humane form of execution. Now, they, uh, it's French. And it was actually used up until the 1980s. I don't know if you know that. We were putting people on the moon and the, and the French were still using the guillotine. Uh, <laughs> but the French society was so weird when they introduced the guillotine for the first time, the people who came to watch it uh, put into pray, play uh, complained because it was too quick. Yeah, that's how weird humans can be. Crucifixion is not a quick method of execution. Death can last, can take between six hours and up to four days, and maybe longer, depending on conditions. And the the effects of the pre-crucifixion, like Jesus being scourged, uh, the hemorrhaging, the blood loss, the dehydration from the elements, all of those things would contribute to the death of someone crucified. Now, the thing about it is, is crucifixion was so heinous that for it to be talked about in Roman public was unacceptable. You say, what would that look like for us? That would be like if we sat around and we talked about capital punishment. We just we don't do it. We know it's there. You know, we're, our position on it can be varied, but we don't sit around and talk about that. You, no one's going to go to lunch today and go, "Hey, how about that capital punishment?" <laughs> they just didn't talk about it because it was an undignified conversation, and it was un, it was an undignified part of society. There's also the chi, a cross. Uh, that they would use. Now this would entail uh, either being tied or being nailed. Now the one that we're most familiar with, and I believe the one that is most biblically accurate, is the cross as we understand it. And this is the why. is because when you go to the scripture, you always let the scripture speak to us. The scripture says that Pilate did what? He put above Jesus' head, king of the Jews. Well, there had to be something there for Pilate to adhere it to. So when we think of the cross, this is, the, this is historically uh, and most likely the cross in which was used for the crucifixion of Christ. Now, it's not until the 4th century that the cross became something that we wear. Now, again, can you imagine how out of normal it would be to wear something of public execution? So it wasn't until, you know, some 400 years later that people started wearing crosses to identify with Christ. And it's still today we wear crosses. Some wear a crucifix where Christ is still displayed on the cross. 
And, and that in of itself is not wrong. Some wear uh, larger crosses and some wear small. If you watched the TCU game yesterday, uh, <coughs> um, our friend Deion Sanders was sporting a pretty good, pretty good hearty cross. It looked silver, and I'm thinking it probably was silver. Now, the thing about the crucifixion was uh, it happened uh, early in the morning. The trials happened at night, and they went from, from uh, Pilate's uh, court to Golgotha. Now, this is a map of the pathway. It's called the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. You can go there. You can walk the Via Dolorosa. Pilgrims do it. Uh, there's the stations of the cross. My favorite station of the cross is the second station. There's a great little restaurant right there. You can sit and have a little snack. And uh, one of the things about that station that means a lot to me is they excavated down uh, to the time of Christ and brought stones up. And so there are stones there now that they believe were actually walked upon by Jesus at that second station. It's not a long walk, but it is a walk. Now, today I'm going to give you a little more information about the crucifixion because I'm not going to try to solve the question, but I'm just going to try to give you the information. In the way, uh, in the way to the crucifixion, Jesus was uh, in, in rough shape. I think that's a gross understatement. And the Bible tells us that one of the men in the crowd named Simon of Cyrene was pressed into duty to carry the cross of Jesus because he was unable to carry it. Either he was unable to carry it or they wanted it to get on up the road. They were trying to get things done. Now, one of the things we need to think about Simon is this. He didn't come there for the execution of Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't being executed until just hours ago. He didn't come there to be a part of this, but he was there. Now, why was he on the Via Della Rosa? Well, I mean, we go to parades. This would have been a big thing, and people would have wanted to see what was going on. We don't know why he was there. We're not told exclusively, but he was there, and he was pressed into service. Let me give you this point. You'll never know where. You'll never know how, and you'll never know why you're going to meet Jesus. That's what I take away from this. So Simon of Cyrene is mentioned in three of the four Gospels, and he was forced to carry the uh, cross for Jesus. Now, Cyrene, you see, is in modern-day Libya. Now, why he was in Jerusalem, we're not told. He's a Jewish uh, individual who is in uh, Jerusalem at the time, and uh, let's see, we'll go on from there. That we were talking about. That. Now, we're told that he, along with some other men, some other individuals, were part of the conversion on Pentecost. Was this man a believer in Jesus when he carried the cross? We can't say, but we can say that at Pentecost he became a believer in Jesus Christ. And he and other believers, after the martyrdom of Stephen, the deacon of the first church, uh, scattered and went to Antioch. Now, I always like to give you an idea. So you remember the rule. Anytime we look at the Holy Land, we always orientate ourselves by where Jerusalem is. And so on this picture, you see that Jerusalem... Oh, no. No one... E- okay, hold on. No one even told me. Did- Somebody, somebody got to give me a help here. And so during the persecution, they, they, they scattered and they went north to Antioch. 
these believers were instrumental in the formation of the church in Antioch. And in Antioch, where the first time we hear and are referred to by the title of Christians. You're called a Christian today in part because of the church in Antioch. Acts 11.26 tells us this. And when he, Barnabas, found him, Saul, who Saul? Yes, we, we know him as Paul today. Paul, Saul had met Christ, had been converted. Barnabas found Saul and brought him to Antioch. He brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, where they were going is an interesting, I hate to say the debate, but a debate. In Jerusalem, there are two locations that include tombs. Jesus was going to Calvary. He was going to Golgotha, uh, a place of execution. And so today I'm going to give you the information on the two, and the Lord will just have to let you know. So this photograph is taken outside of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now, and a few interesting facts. One, the key to this church is actually cared for as an entrusted into a Muslim family. They've had it since it was built. Also, if you look over there to the right, there's, you can't see it, but there's a, a small white sphere. That's where they put bombs when they're discovered. That's where they detonate bombs. So you don't want to stand next to that. And then in this picture here, if you look right here at the bottom in the middle, there's a little ramp. Someone in this room was standing on that ramp when they fell down. And I read something the other day. You know whether you're younger or older by if you fall down. If people laugh, you're younger. If they run to your assistance, you're older. <laughs> the individual who were standing on that ramp on that morning who fell down was laughed at heartily. But this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is one of the, this is the older traditional sites of not only Calvary, but the tomb of Christ. Okay? And so inside, the, uh, this is, the, when, I, when I had a chance to, I look at the church and it's hard for me to visualize how can this once have been what it was. And so this is a great depiction. So churches were built over holy sites, one, as a way to protect them, two, as a way of worshiping, uh, and three, depending on where you go, uh, there's some money being made, but that's a whole different story. But when you look at this church, this is what it looked like at one time in history. Uh, this church claims that uh, Calvary or Golgotha is actually inside the building. You see over here to the right. And then they trimmed out the hillside where the tomb of Christ would be. And this is the photograph inside. The smaller building inside the larger structure is what, uh, what is claimed to be the tomb of Christ. You can wait uh, sometimes a long time, sometimes a short time, and go in there and actually touch the place that tradition says Christ was laid to rest. Now this is a beautiful place. Now, even in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, Christians can't get along. There are four churches that claim this site, and they participate in this site. Now, the four of them can't get along. There's a lot of ways I could explain that to you, but I'll give you the simplest one. Is they all worship, they all want to be a part of the day-to-day -day operations. And the building's a big square. And so what they'll do is each one of them will stand at a corner... 
and they, they make procession around the church with incense and prayers and songs. But they will stand at each corner and they will all move simultaneously so as to not run into each other. That's true. And uh, you need to ask me about the ladder on the outside. That's a different story. Now, there's also the garden tomb. Now, this photograph is obviously older, and it's taken outside uh, of the Damascus Gate of the old city. This is a rock quarry, and if you look inside that red circle, you'll see what appears to be like a skull. And so history uh, tells us that this could have been the execution site. The Romans, uh, I'll get there in a minute. This is the modern day picture of this beautiful place, this sacred place, this antique, antique place. And it's right above a bus lot. Uh, Chris, do you remember? Our hotel was in front of this bus lot. It, it's a little hard when you walk out and you go, well, there's Golgotha, and you're standing and getting ran over by buses. But from this site... Around to the left, if you're looking at it, not far, is the garden tomb location where tradition says that's the tomb that Christ was laid in. I've been in them both, and I'm very happy to report that Jesus is in neither. Um, so, um, so now let's talk about the crucifixion. Where Christ was laid is important, but it's, it's not a factor of my faith. The fact that he's not still laying there, that's the factor. But the crucifixion of Christ. Let's look at this. What were the Roman goals for crucifixion? One was to be unspeakably cruel. There is absolutely nothing about crucifixion that is not cruel. Secondly, was mercilessly lingering. Now, we know that Jesus and the two thieves were on the cross approximately six hours. That's a short time. It was a rushed period of time. Sometimes they wanted it to last. They would hold these crucifixions outside the main gate at the crossroads of business and travel for a lot of reasons. One is they wanted to make sure everyone saw it as a deterrent. We do not have public executions in America, but that is not the way in many parts of our world. Uh, there have been many debates about whether we should make execution observable. But they would do it there so that anyone that would walk by would see if you break the rules or you cross the Romans, that's what you get. And depending on the circumstances, not only would they crucify you in a public place, but they would leave you there until nature took its course. Sometimes entire gardens would be uh, strewn with crucifixions. It was uh, a public thing. It was a certifiable thing. Ladies and gentlemen, no one went on a cross and came out alive. There were no questions. There was no debate. There was no doubt. The swoon theory of Jesus is a very poor thought. Crucifixion was always on a low hillside outside the main gate. The crucifixion with Jesus and the two thieves lasted approximately six hours, beginning approximately at 9 a.m. From 9 a.m. to noon, we see that Jesus speaks three times. First, he speaks to the Heavenly Father on behalf of those who are crucifying him. And he says, Father, forgive them, 
for they know not what they do. Now, forgiveness is who Jesus is. It's what he does, and it's why he came. Anytime you think you're beyond God's forgiveness, my friends, remember this prayer. Anytime you think someone at your workplace is beyond hope and salvation of Jesus, think of this prayer. Anytime you're stuck in traffic, think of this prayer. Anytime you go to the bank and they go, well, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do, think of this prayer. Jesus, while on the cross, was still doing what Jesus came to do. What? To forgive. I mentioned in the uh, 9 o'clock hour about Irish Alzheimer's. Maybe you've never heard of that. You know you have Irish Alzheimer's when you can forget everything except the grudges that you hold. My friends, as believers, when we wrestle with forgiveness, we need to remember this prayer. Because it doesn't matter what is being done to you, it's not this. As Colin says, it may be hard, but it's not the cross. And so Jesus prays on behalf of those who are actually in the process of crucifying him. Secondly, uh, to the repentant thief. I think this is one of the greatest conversations in the Bible. When people start to discuss about what it takes to be born again, to be saved, to have heaven as your home, to be forgiven, we simply have to look to this conversation. Because I always ask the question, what did the thief do? After this conversation, did he tithe? No. Did he join a denomination? No. Did he read the translation of the Bible? No. Did he stop going to bars? No. Did he stop cussing? Well, maybe. What did the thief do? He simply received what Jesus had to say. You remember them. There were two of them. One of them railed against him. Classic. Oh, well, if you're God, save yourself and save us. Classic. But the other one, and Jesus replied to him, today you will be with me in Paris. Today. Remember what I said about the cross? No one comes out alive. This man didn't either. I've had conversations with people who have denied Jesus. They said, well, I'll wait till I'm dying to get saved. And I thought, well, to my, I thought to myself, mm, that's Las Vegas odds right there. Because not many of us get to know when that happens. It's foolishness, obviously. The third prayer in that first three-hour section was for Mary and John. When Jesus was making provision for his mother. I thought about this this week. Jesus calls Mary his mother, woman. He says, woman, this is your son, and son, this is your mother. Why? I thought about, why would he refer to his mom as woman? Now, this is just my sanctified imagination, okay? Don't build theology around this. This is just me. I just think it was maybe a little too hard for him to say mom. Can you imagine? This is kind of formal. And it wasn't that he didn't love her, and it wasn't that he wasn't heartbroken over her heartbrokenness. I just think there's a man trying to take care of some business in a very difficult moment. 
maybe a little bit of an avoidance here. Does anyone ever do that? You know if you say a certain name or you go a certain place or you see a certain person, you know that you're not really going to be able to hold it all together. When my bride was in her car accident now, gosh, it was, it was this weekend. Uh, 90, 91, 90, 91. Yes, uh, Labor Day of 92. My bride was nearly killed in an automobile accident up on Wesley Street. And uh, she spent uh, time in ICU, spent a month in the hospital. It, it's a long story. But I avoided seeing our year and a half old daughter for several days. You know why? It's not because I didn't love her. It's because I couldn't, I couldn't hold my lunch together. And I'll tell you this. One of the worst nights of my life was the first night I was home alone with my daughter. And she asked for her mama. But praise God. So he takes care of his mother. The second section from noon to three is a different encounter. The Bible tells us and Luke records that the the day turned as to night. And in this three-hour span, Jesus will speak four additional times. The first one, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why would the Son of God say something like this to the Father of God, to the Father God? The answer is, I don't know. But this is what I do know, is that God is holy and just, and he judges sin. And the Scripture tells us that Jesus did not sin, but he became sin. Whose sin? My sin. And your sin. I'm a sinner. I used to sin. I still sin. Not nearly as much as I used to. And as long as God sustains my life, I will sin. Jesus became my sin. I know my sin. I know what I've done. And the Bible says that Jesus became my sin. And a holy God and a loving God judged Jesus for my sin so that I might not be judged for my sin. And somewhere in the midst of this judgment, there was a separation. I can't explain it. We have other great theologians in the room, and I would put them on, uh, on the spot, but I won't do it this morning. I don't know what happened there. But for the first time, the only time, and the last time, Jesus felt something that he had not felt before. And he calls out to his father, Why have you forsaken me? His humanity is on display. Secondly, he says, I thirst. One of the challenges that you and I face is remembering that Jesus, oh my goodness, that Jesus is all man and all God, and his thirst was simply a physical thirst. What a terrible thing he had been through. He says, it is finished. What does that mean? It's not that he's finished, it's finished. The payment for sin. The full payment. Let's say full payment. Full payment. Not partial payment. Not 99 yards on the 100-yard gridiron. All of it. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. We don't add to it. We can't take away from it. We can't uh, boost it up to 110%. When Jesus says it's finished, it's finished. When someone tells you you need to earn your way to heaven, my friends, it's finished. 
And then this one, I want to take just a sec. I'm going to cut this one short. <clears throat> Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Jesus made a very important decision. The Sanhedrin did not kill Jesus. Pilate did not kill Jesus. Jesus gave himself up. And that's a very important distinction that I think sometimes we gloss over. Because in giving himself up, he displayed himself ruler over death in Lazarus. And soon he will display himself as ruler over sin because he paid the full penalty. Jesus surrendered his life. We're going to skip it here a little bit. Joseph of Arimathea claimed Jesus' body along with others to get him in the tomb by sundown. It was quick. Everything about this was quick. They wanted to get him laid to rest, albeit temporarily. Joseph of Arimathea was among the Sanhedrin, who you remember earlier that night had been coerced for this conviction. He disagreed with the conviction. He was a follower of Christ. And he risked his life, his position, and his reputation to claim the body of Christ and to minister to him so that he wouldn't be done with uh, in an unrighteous way. They placed him in a borrowed tomb. And in that borrowed tomb, he spent three days. Three days of despair, of which Thomas would have partook. It wasn't that Jesus has just been arrested, but now he's dead. What hope he may have held on to has been struck. There was doubt. The Romans doubted Jesus would be resurrected. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't believe in Judaism. They didn't believe in the God of the Hebrews. They didn't. But the Hebrews debated. They debated on what was to transpire. So much that they wanted the tomb to be guarded. But on the third day, on the third day, Thomas and the rest of the world was put in a position to make a decision. And it's the same decision we make today. Is it true? Is it trustworthy? And is it lasting? Next week, we'll pick up with Thomas and now we'll get to see was he a doubter or was he just being inquisitive? One of the things I love about Thomas is this. In the midst of the trial, the tribulation, and the uncertainty, his answer was this. I want to see Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that should be our request. In the midst of the trials, the tribulations, and the uncertainties, I just want to see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that in spite of man's plans, Lord, in spite of 
man's uncertainty and our ability to flip-flop on an issue. Father, we thank you that you are never dissuaded, distracted, or deterred. Father, we thank you that you are always on time and that your will is always brought to pass. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And Father, we thank you that he saw the sacrifice through to the bitter end. Lord, not that we were owed any of it, but because you loved us. And Father, we thank you that because of his resurrection, we, like Thomas, can have the greatest questions in life answered. Lord, not all the questions, but the greatest ones. Father, you leave us ample room to exercise faith because you say in your word, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Father, we admit today that we do not know everything and you have not told us everything. But Father, we admit today that what we know, we can trust. And what we can trust, we can have faith in the things we do not know. Father, bless us. Draw us close to you. And help us to be thirsty with the question and the statement on our lips, I just want to see Jesus. And we'll give you the glory for it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.